Good morning and welcome to Mad, Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. You're here with myself, Jaime, and today I am by myself, but thank, luckily for you, um, I have a guest, so you're not going to be withstanding me talking for about an hour. Um, this morning I'm going to be talking to Associate Professor uh, Jane Wilkinson. She's the Associate Dean of Graduate Research and Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at Monash University. And hopefully we'll have a very good conversation about um, education and schools and and inclusion and leadership. Um, and be to kick off our conversation, we will play um, the first selection from um, from Jane's list. Um, I'm pretty sure that most of our listeners will be quite familiar with this song. So let's see if you enjoy this one. <laughs> All right, I think I'm going to put my guest on the spot already. Good morning, Jane. Good morning, Jaime. Um, tell me what we listen to right now and why you chose that song to start with. Um, I just love Aretha Franklin. I love her songs. I love her singing. I love her soul. Um, she's been, a, I suppose, a really important feature of my life for a very long time, um, a proud black woman. Um, with an extraordinary gift. I was incredibly sad, I'm sure, like many of your listeners, when she died, and uh, I wanted to honour and, and respect her. Well, I think that's a great um, song to start with. I am very happy with that. Now the bar is pretty high, so let's see how you, how you track today. Eh? <laughs> All right, Jane, so you are Associate Professor at um, Monash University. How long have you been there for? Uh, so I've been there just over four years now. Okay, so I, perhaps we'll start in the usual way on Mad Village, which is um, I want to learn a little bit about uh, your childhood mm -hmm. and, and your early days and mm -hmm. where you grew up and w what sort of led you to where you are now. Okay, so I actually grew up in Melbourne on the other side of town in Clayton uh, at a time when Clayton was... Um, very much a, a new suburb my parents bought there after the war and I guess we were quite typical as a family of that um, post-war um, generation. My mum my was a factory worker who emigrated to Australia at the age of 20, speaking no English from Palestine. Oh, wow. My, yeah, yeah. My dad um, was very much from working class Anglo-Aussie but English background and uh, from the north of England, his family. And, um, you know, they literally were the boy and girl next door. So mum was in a boarding house um, practising her English and my father says he, I suppose she was exotic. He clapped <laughs> eyes on her and thought she was the most beautiful girl in the world. Uh, so they got married and um, my sisters and I were brought up in Clayton. Um, not such a happy ending. They did divorce when we were very little. Uh, and so for me, you know, I grew up as uh, one of three girls in, um, you know, with my mum on a factory worker's way just trying to bring us up. And that was a tough – it was tough. Um, but we were in a really multicultural, ethnically diverse suburb and I love that. So my best girlfriends were all Greek and Italian and Spanish and former Yugoslavian and, and you know, from a whole range of different backgrounds. And so... Um, so, Jane, can I ask you, highlight. is there a bit of Arabic in your... No. So my um, my mum's grandparents were, um, like a lot of Jews, they immigrated or they fled from um, Eastern Europe, from okay. Romania in the 1880s. Um, you know, there was a lot of persecution going on at that time in Europe. 
And um, so they were a part of a kind of a early group of Zionists, I guess, who yeah. were looking for a better life and wow. they came to Palestine and settled there, yeah. So you you grew up speaking in English? Or? Uh, only in English, sadly. Um, I learnt to swear in Yiddish and Hebrew. <laughs> um, but, yeah, because I guess mum was married to an Anglo and also because, um, you know, at that time I don't think people understood. They thought they were doing the right thing as migrants by speaking only in English to their kids so they didn't understand maybe the gift of bilingualism. So, I mean, I learnt French. At school. I am a French and English teacher, but, yeah, I, did, I didn't learn, sadly, to speak. But So you you grew up in class? Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the apple didn't fall very far from the tree, given that you're working <laughs> yeah. <there> now. <laughs> well, I've actually had a very, um, very long uh, career, or not a long career, but working elsewhere. So I only actually moved back to Melbourne four years ago. Um, so I love Melbourne, and, but my um, partner, I, like, like lots of, te- I became a teacher. Like a lot of teachers, I was bonded and I was sent to a country a small country town in Western Victoria, which was um, an extraordinary learning experience. I had a huge cultural shock. Cause so I which, come, which town was that? Um, it's a little town called Garoke, okay. and it's um, about 80 kilometres west of Horsham in Western Victoria. Yeah. Wow. And um, so I went from the most culturally and ethnically diverse um, area of Melbourne to the most monocultural um, least ethnically diverse part of Victoria, and I was in shock. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Um, so I had two years there, but oh, look, I did meet my partner there, and um, he's a he's a researcher in agriculture. So we we ended up living in regional Victoria and then regional New South Wales for a long, very long time. So I actually taught. And then uh, did a PhD and moved into academia in regional New South Wales. So I have literally come back home, but it's taken a very long time. All right. So um, that's great. I just wanted to mm-hmm. go back perhaps with to your school days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did you um, always know that you wanted to become a teacher? Yeah, look, I was a little kid that, you know, was very dorky and I used to line my teddy bears up in the <laughs> chair and with the chalkboard and teach them and all that sort of thing. And, you know, I, when I look back now, I think about um, growing up in the 70s, you know, even then opportunities for girls were very limited. I was I was from a really working class background. No one in my family had finished high school, let alone gone to uni. So to become a teacher at that stage was a huge aspiration and it was something my mother really encouraged. So I think, you know, I, I did seriously contemplate doing becoming a lawyer, but I, I just felt like, I think looking back, I was very young and it felt like a bridge too far. You know, what's a working class girl from Clayton doing even considering being a lawyer? I don't th- I hope now that young women wouldn't feel that way, but that was how I felt at the time. And there was no role, mo- role models for us mm. in our area or in our family. So, yeah. And so I want to delve on that mm. period for mm. just a few more minutes. Mm. Um, so tell me about teacher training back in those yeah. days. Yeah. So look, uh, you know, and I want to really add to anyone who's listening, either who loves teachers or is a teacher themselves, to say, I don't think it was a default thing to become a teacher. I'm really proud of being a teacher. I think it's a fantastic profession. Um, it's really more a reflection of the narrowness of the options that were available at the time. That's right. Um, so, yeah, I actually went and did uh, the old classic training of I, – I did a Bachelor of Arts. I did an honours degree in English literature because I loved English. 
and then I did a dip ed, which was a 12-month teacher training qualification at the end, which fortunately I have to say I think is no longer available because it's tough to learn to be a teacher in 12 months it's I used to, I used to say to my students it's it's a cruel qualification because you really get thrown in at the deep end without a lot of good foundations so you know I I literally I like all teachers you learn on the job but I think I really did have a baptism of fire because I don't feel like I probably got the level of um you know, kind of creden- not credentialing so much, but training that I probably needed. And I think that all new teachers need. I think it's much better now. It's improved hugely. Mm. So um, then after teaching for a number of years, mm-hmm. then you decided to do your PhD. Yeah, look, I, I taught for seven years and then I, um, I, I, I moved back to Horsham. So I moved to Melbourne and I taught for a number of years in, in actually not – that far from here at Gladstone Park High School yep, and yep. then um, Gladdy Park as we called it and then um, I moved to the country to Horsham to live with my partner and um, I was really fortunate that the Department of Ed at that stage was going through a major restructure and they were looking for people with expertise in English curriculum and I had that so I became a curriculum consultant. I worked for five years with um, primary and high schools across the whole of the Central Highlands Wimmera of Victoria And I became the equivalent of a deputy principal, which I loved. I really enjoyed that. And then I became a deputy principal at Horsham College for a short time. By that stage, I'd gotten pregnant. Um, My partner, um, a a position came up for him um, in New South Wales, in Wagga Wagga. And I guess I was at a point in a pitchfork or a fork in my life where I just thought, look, I can either continue and I think I'd be a good administrator, a good principal, Um, But I'd always had a hankering to do further study. And a friend of mine said, look, why don't you consider doing a PhD? And I thought, why not? Here's my chance. If I don't do it now, you know, give it a go. So I uh, went and had a baby, moved to New South Wales. And after a few years of doing some bits and pieces, I started doing my PhD. Yeah. And um, was your PhD in sort of that area of education and leadership already or yeah yeah well because I was the youngest deputy principal in the whole of Central Highlands Wimmera I was one of the few women and I was I think I suspect I'm sure I was the only person of a non-English speaking background you know at least originally from my mum's side and non-Anglo background from my mum's side I was really conscious of what it's like to be in a kind of minority because I was both a female, so I was in a minority anyway in the leadership role, but I was also, um, as I said, from a, a kind of a, I mean, we have no religious belief as a family, but secular, I'm a Jew. And, uh, you know, it puts you in this interesting position of being, be, both being an insider and an outsider. So I ended up doing my PhD looking at women leaders in education from different cultural and um, ethnic backgrounds. And that was fantastic because it meant I got to interview a whole bunch of really feisty, amazing women from very different backgrounds. They weren't Anglo women. There was a couple of Anglo women and the rest were Aboriginal women and women from Greek and Italian and Chinese backgrounds. And they really brought a different picture, I think, to the leadership field. You're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. It is now 14 minutes past nine. And our guest this morning is Jane Wilkinson from Monash University. She's an associate professor there and also the associate dean of uh, graduate research. Um, and we're going to just listen to um, Jane's second selection uh, just to give you a bit of a break. But uh, then we're going to come back into your, your PhD and, and learn a little bit what you, what you learned. All right. So here's some Carol King. <laughs> I feel the earth move 
1970. I was just a young gal at that time and I just remember it coming on to the airwaves and it just blew my mind. I loved it and I guess again it was perhaps the first time I'd heard a woman singing who had such a such life and who was speaking about her own experiences and that album topped the charts and it was there for like a year and it was just everywhere. It was on the airwaves everywhere. And it was just, I think, you know, I was young and it just hit me at just the right time. It strikes me as well that the the rhythm is not dissimilar to the first song that you chose. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, it must mean that you're quite a dynamic woman. Yeah, that's, yeah <laughs> that's an interesting way to put it, but I think that's true. <laughs> Beautiful. So um, we uh, were just, before we were just chatting about your PhD and... Mm-hmm. I just want to learn a little bit more mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. perhaps, I mean, I know it's it's hard to summarize a five-year experience mm-hmm. into just a few sentences, but mm. I just wanted to learn, you know, what what, what some of the th- key, key things that you learned yeah, when you yeah. did that. So, look, I think one of the issues has been in the study of leadership and, and particularly educational leadership is that we, we tend, when I say we, you know, I'm talking about in Australia, but Anglo-Saxon countries... More generally, we think about leaders and leadership as something associated with being Anglo-Saxon, and I think it's a really unconscious thing. We don't realise it. But when you look at the profile of educational leaders, so I'm now talking about in schools, universities, uh, and the education sector more broadly, but particularly schools, um, they're very much Anglo-centric. So they're very much Anglo background. They don't actually reflect the cultural diversity of our society. And I think the latest stats that we've got around this are that something like might be 3 or 4% of principals are from non-Anglo backgrounds. Well, anyone who knows anything about Australia knows that that's completely unrepresentative of the Australian society. So in fact, when I began my PhD, we couldn't find, we could not identify enough women principals or principal background people who came from non-Anglo backgrounds. So I ended up doing my study in the university sector because interestingly, there's a lot more women from different ethnic backgrounds in the university sector compared to schools. Now that actually has changed, thankfully. Mm. It is changing. Um, So one of the things, what was one of the findings was that, you know, perhaps no great surprise, but if you're from a non-Anglo background and a woman, so there's two things working there together. It's both the gender and the ethnicity. Um, you know, there's, diff- there's a different way in which people will often understand leadership and practice leadership. Um, and so, you know, that that I think that comes to bear in how they, they do their job as leaders. Um, they bring a kind of different set of experiences. The other thing, again, perhaps no great surprise, is there's a whole set of stereotypes about what leaders should look like. And so for those women, there were particular challenges about their leadership because of the sorts of stereotypes that people were constantly bringing into um, their, you know, their interactions with these women. Um, so to give you an example, the women who were from um, Greek and Italian backgrounds constantly didn't get recognised as leaders. Like literally people would think that they were the cleaner (laughs) or they were the secretary. Mm. At best they were the secretary. And so, Mm. you know, there was a whole thing around how they had to prove themselves as leaders but also to get to a point where they were comfortable with owning their background and to be able to say that that was a huge strength they brought to the leadership, which in fact it was, uh, rather than something to be ashamed or embarrassed about. 
And interestingly, again, it was Indigenous women. Now, I can't say, you know, this isn't a representative sample, but the Indigenous women had more issues around the the fact that they were um, women, this is in the university sector, than being Indigenous. So what they said was being Indigenous in some ways was an asset. It was seen as a really good thing to bring to the universities. The universities were hungry for these fabulous women who brought their Indigenous background. But being a woman, they encountered a lot of sexism. So not to say they didn't encounter racism, they did, but it was like the sexism was particularly... Uh, problematic. So, I mean, you were studying this 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Was, was Is it fair to say that um, you were a bit of a pioneer in, in this sort of yeah, area? Yeah, yeah. Because when, in fact, I at that time, when I was looking at the research, I fa- could find very little. In fact, there was virtually no research. There was some research that was done um, in the US. Yeah. So the African-American, the women of colour, were mm. doing some really interesting work around being a woman of colour in academia. And there was some research around being a woman of colour in schools. But I have to say, in Britain and Australia, in New Zealand, in the other Anglo-Saxon countries, there was virtually nothing. And... Um, so it was a little bit around indigenous indigenous women and leadership, but again, very little. So I think that has changed, but at the time it was it was really one of my criticisms was that the you know the study on women and leadership just tended to assume that women were, to be honest, were Anglo Saxon. And it was just they didn't think about it. These people who did the research kind of weren't thinking about it in any other way it <coughs> wasn't it it was, it was a kind of like an unconscious bias if you like so jane would it be fair to say as well that this also i guess determined your pathway in terms of your, your future research as well because mm. those themes of leadership and inclusion mm-hmm. um, seem to be very present in all of your research is yeah, that right yeah very much so very much so so, um, all right, so when you finished your PhD, mm-hmm. um, where were you and where mm-hmm. did you go? Yeah, so I was living in, in Wagga Wagga with my husband and my daughter. And, um, you know, so that was a big regional town. It's, a, it's an interesting town. Um, you know, it's large. Uh, again, very monocultural. Uh, but something that was very interesting that happened in Wagga that did actually kind of also shift or, or kind of determined the sort of research I did was um, Wagga was named as one of the preferred regional resettlement areas for refugees by the federal government. And so what that meant was that very white, uh, apart from Aboriginal people, monocultural face of Wagga started to change while I was there and I saw it changing. And when I finished my PhD, I had a wonderful colleague come on board who was from Kenya and who was very... um, very present and involved in the Wagga African Elders community. And uh, he and I, you know, I was asking some questions about, you know, what does it mean for schools, school leaders, for teachers who have been, who themselves are monocultural, who've been working in a very monocultural space and who are now working with a much more ethnically diverse school population. And so that's where my colleague Kip and I started to do some research around um looking at schools and looking at young people of refugee background and what was happening for those young people as they encountered this, um, what had been a very non-diverse school setting. Wow. So um, just 
keep, mm-hmm. keep telling keep me. talking where, about where, that. Where okay, that okay. You? Yeah. So I'm, I'm originally, I was also as an, in English as a second language teacher, so I come with a strong ESL background. I was the kid that wrote the, my mother, you know, for my mother, the, in, the shopping list in English and um, because mum never had any English um, you know, tuition at that time. So she picked up her English from the factory floor. She could write a little bit. She could read. But, um, you know, so I had an empathy around that and I'd trained as an ESL teacher. I'd taught at Gladdy Park as an ESL teacher. Um, so, uh, well, so what we did was we began with the schools and there was a particular comprehensive government school there that was um, actually doing some really good work in this space. And I was really interested to understand, we were interested in understanding what were they doing and what were the kinds of um, enabling conditions, if you like, that they were building that seemed to be helping to support these young people. So we did interviews with the teachers, we did interviews with the executive, but very importantly we also did interviews with the kids, both the Anglo kids and also the kids of refugee background because we wanted to kind of get a picture of what was happening here. And so it was It was really clear, I come as a leadership scholar, it was clear to me that there was something around the leadership of that of that school that was important uh, it was it was a collective leadership and it was a distributed leadership. So you had people at the top, both the principal and the deputy principal, who came with a really they they had a very strong consciousness about the importance of inclusion. It wasn't just tokenistic. They themselves, so the deputy principal had um, he he talked about how he'd lived in the US as a young child. He had seen the levels of racism in the US and how, kind of apartheid almost that had existed in the US and he felt incredibly strongly about why that was so wrong. So he brought this passion for social justice into his role and he was, if you like, the ambassador for those young people. Uh, the ESL teachers were incredibly important. They set up an intensive English um, program for the young people. Um, strategically what the school did was, because this is a country high school, there, weren't, there were certainly reasonable numbers of kids of refugee background but not huge so one of the things the school did was to try and bring together all these kids so that they could get a sufficient critical mass to get funding to have a decent English immersion program for these young people but also to make it a program where the kids were also um, mixing with the mainstream classes as well so they weren't just being isolated in an immersion program they did all those things. But the other thing I think they did, and this was really important in terms of citizenship for these young people, was they had a student representative council and they said that two of those positions had to go to a young woman and a young male of refugee background um, because they said it was really important that they had input, that they started to be seen as leaders, that these were young people who brought an extraordinary set of experiences into the school and that that needed to be valued. They ran barbecues where they invited the families of refugee background kids, but they also in, um, asked the refugee background children themselves to invite a Anglo child or a child, you know, from outside their own ethnic background um, so that they could also build a rapport and those families came along as well. So they did a whole lot of um, really important things in ter- terms of social citizenship and social inclusion. And I think these are the sorts of things Schools can be incredibly enabling places, as you probably know, but they can also be um, really problematic places for young people and for children. And so all of those things, I think, help to build engagement, a sense of 
feeling like you belong, you you have a sense of community, that there is a place and a space where you feel safe and you're familiar. And I, I don't want to um, gloss over the racism. <laughs> there was definitely racism. There, were, there was definitely more work to be done around trying to build uh, um, integration between the various groups. But I think it was quite a remarkable thing for a school to do at a time when the, this school was, as I said, you know, frankly, a fairly mon- very monocultural school. Um, but I think they happened to have, thank God, the right people at the right time in the leadership spaces. So we did that. And then from there, one of the things, because one of the great things about living in a regional town and being part of a regional town is it's small enough you get to know lots of people And one of the things that both my colleague and I noticed was that these young people, after some time, were at least some of them were starting to engage with community. They were playing sport. They were doing lots of different things. And we could see that there was a whole lot of um, spaces, if you like, outside formal education that were incredibly important in helping these communities to start to engage and to feel like they were part of a community, a broader Australian community. And so our next study was we asked a group of young people, about 12 young people, and they were mainly um, South Sudanese background um, because that was the main dominant um, group that had had come into into the community at that stage. We asked them to take pictures of people, places and networks outside school that they felt were helping them to start to become integrated and welcomed into the community. And then we asked them to – we interviewed their families and we asked them as young people to then select three to, two, three to five photographs um, of people or places or networks where they felt like they were starting to become included and just to talk to us about why they selected those photographs. And out of that was the most wonderful set of conversations that happened with these young people because they had voice – they were at the centre. We weren't there with pre-imposed questions, asking them things. They were talking to us about what mattered and who mattered for them and why it mattered. And then we said, are there any people or any activities you'd like us to go and observe or people you'd like us to interview who can tell us more about this? So they nominated sporting coaches, youth group workers, you know, church ministers, public librarians, just a range of different people. And we went and interviewed those people and it gave us a very rich picture of what was going on for them. And so we talked in our – when we wrote about this, we talk about the role of – we call them everyday learning spaces. So these are the spaces outside formal education in community that make a difference, can make a real difference and a positive difference. Um, But also to say that these spaces were not just – giving these young people brought something really incredibly powerful to those Mm. spaces so to give an example the local church one of the local churches which so in Wagga the churches had formed a consortium to bring um, refugee people out to to Wagga and they they divvied it up this is a great thing about regional towns because they all work together um so you know the uniting church did this part of the the the, the settlements and the, the st vincent de paul did the housing part and somebody else did, you know but they all work together as a consortium um and so one of the things that came through really clearly was that the um one of the particular churches had an aging anglo-saxon um profile and they talked about how fantastic it was to have these people of faith, these families come in, 
who were young, they were vivacious, mm. they brought a new energy. So the old people loved it and the church really benefited from it. And so I think getting those perspectives as well, sport, no, again, no great surprise, but just the role of sport in really kind of um, helping these young people to grow. So a number of the kids became like coaches in the AFL. The AFL was incredibly important. Now, was, was they did that, a great job. Was that already, uh, mostly for the boys or the girls uh, were also getting involved? Yeah, the girls were also getting involved. So I come with a very strong <laughs> feminist. I come with a very strong gender lens. So I wanted to know also about the girls. What, what about for the girls? So with the girls, because the um, one of the particular – there was a particular um, um, uh, government – Oh, it was not a government, it was a charity, but they had been funded to do a lot of youth work with these families and the communities. And so they had a female youth worker as well as a male youth worker. The female youth worker herself was South Sudanese background. She'd been in Wagga for a long time. She had wonderful um, links with the families and with the young girls themselves. And so they funded uh, a netball team They did a lot of work with the young girls to really try and encourage them because that you know the parents the you know whatever family members there might be guardians uh, were particularly protective of their young girls, and so having these um, people who act as as like bridges, if you like, between the uh, the community, the young girls, and the sporting codes was extremely important. Uh, soccer as well. The girls, a lot of the girls were fantastic at soccer, and so they would fund. They funded the girls to, you know, they paid their insurance, they paid the, and they would arrange to get them to the the various sporting venues. But the families would only allow that because they had this youth worker, female, South mm. Sudanese background, fantastic woman, with whom she they had great trust. It's all about relationships and Absolutely. trust. Absolutely, and I think one of the things about being a regional town is that people, you know, so we had examples of Anglo-Saxon families who lived next door to a South Sudanese family and the kids maybe kind of locked eyes across, you know, and they were kicking a soccer ball around or something like that and they'd chat to one another and they'd kick the soccer ball around together and then they'd, the family, the Australian family might say, well, look, you know, your kid obviously really likes soccer. Do, do you want to, you know, we can take them along to soccer or whatever. And so there, some these things often happen because in a regional t or they're in school together or – You know, they see each other in the supermarket together. They're just these kind of inform, or they're in church. Church was extremely important, whether you're a person of faith or not. They churches were incredibly important in building relationships across class, across mm. ethnicity, and across gender. Um, it's nine thirty-five. Um, you're listening to Matt Village on ninety-eight point nine Northwest FM. Our guest this morning is Associate Professor um, Jane Wilkinson, and we're about to listen to her third selection. This is a bit more obscure than the other two. Um, let's see what people make of it. All right, so I'm back on Mad Village and uh, you just heard that track. Maybe, Jane, just tell us about it. Yeah, so that's um, Pierre Gint. Um It's uh, morning and it's by Grieg and uh, Grieg was a Norwegian composer and some people might be old enough to remember that that was actually a hit in Australia many, many years ago. And so that was the first time I actually heard it was on radio um, and it's it's part of a, a beautiful set of, of 
um, I'm trying to remember because it's been a long time since I've looked at the cover of the album. That's I've still got the old old album, but uh, yeah, I think it's before they go into the, it's the Hall of the Mountain Kings, isn't it? It's part of Nordic mythology, um, and they go into the Hall of the Mountain Kings. But this is the sort of prelude, if you like, this the calm before the storm. Jen, you you ha- you have inspired me. I think I'm gonna devote one day of uh, Mad Village to just classical music. I don't Wonderful. Know if, I don't know how popular it's going to be with our listeners, but we'll, um, we'll inflict it on them, see what happens. <laughs> so Now, just a couple of housekeeping things mm-hmm. I forgot before. If anyone wants to send a question for Jane or any comments, uh, they can su- do so by uh, SMS, uh, 0447777989, or they can also use um, Twitter, and the handle is mad underscore village. All right, so... Let's go. Um, let's try to come back to more recent times. Mm-hmm. Not that it hasn't been fascinating, because it has. Um, but I, I'm interested to know um, what you're devoting your time mm-hmm. to in terms of research. Sure. So I'm I'm doing a couple of projects at the moment. One which has been funded by the Department of Premier and Cabinet Victoria, the Social Inclusion Unit was we recently finished a study, uh, we were really interested in looking at the educative role of schools in building um, social inclusion. So, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk and a lot of research around, um, you know, the – all right, I'll, I'll put, try and put this as carefully as I can, but clearly um, – there's a kind of a discourse out in community and in the, in government around you know counterterrorism and extremism and radicalization and the victorian government i think took a really sensible approach was which was to say this isn't just about policing if you like it's also about how at a broader level as a society we build a, a rich interconnected um, socially cohesive community. By social cohesion, they don't mean everybody sings kumbaya and there's no problems, <laughs> but they mean about, you know, how do you build the kind of rich, thick social fabric where people aren't ripped apart and, you know, not speaking to one another. And so we put a, a submission in saying we think that schools actually have a critical role to play in this and in particular, you know, leaders, but but schools more generally. And so we worked with three schools in the public education um, system. Uh, these were schools which had been identified in collaboration with the department who, and these were schools that had a, a really strong reputation for working with a, a whole range of kids from different ethnic, religious backgrounds, you know, a whole range of backgrounds that might be advantaged or disadvantaged. Um, and, you know, they were schools that had... Um, of children, but these were schools that were working, you know, that seemed to be working very well in terms of building social cohesion. And so we were really interested in trying to understand what these schools were doing, how they were doing it, and what were the kinds of conditions that they were building that were helping to support that. So again, we did we did observations and we did interviews with a whole range of different stakeholders. Not So yes, we talked to principals, we talked to teachers, we talked to the kids, but we also talked to community groups. So we asked the schools what were the kind of key community groups that they were working with and we did interviews with those as, them as well. So it was what we call a pilot study. It was about 12 months. It's not a long study, but it was really fascinating to see. These were completely different schools, one very disadvantaged uh, background, a uh, couple, one that was kind of more well healed, and one that was more socially progressive and also fairly well healed. So we wanted a range of different schools, um, 
first generation migrants along to second, third generation, really diverse ethnic as well as religious backgrounds. Um, and, you know, it was really interesting to see the way those schools were working. And one of the key messages I think that came around was around the um, the importance of a, real, a whole school approach. So it's not enough to kind of do it like a Band-Aid, you know, oh, this year we're doing social cohesion, <laughs> you know, and it had to be something that was going on not just outside in the playground or in the policies but also in terms of the curriculum and the teaching approaches and also in the work with community. So it's not that, you know, community can come in and they can do – a little bit of Band-Aid stuff here and there on the edges, but these were schools that worked very seriously with their various community groups. Uh, and they took their, their role as citizens of that community very seriously. And so one example was a particular school, none of I can't name any of these schools for ethical reasons, but they could see that there was a whole bunch of particularly mothers who were socially isolated and though, so they started to have morning teas and they had a couple of people that who worked as bridge builders between the mums and the school and they started to have these morning teas on a regular basis with the principal and they just, honestly, they'd just sit there and, have, and they'd have translators and stuff and a cup of tea and after a while things, you know, trust, trust started to build and those mothers have now become a collective who run a whole range of various events who feel extremely engaged and uh, again, I can't be more specific than that, except to say that that's one small example of the sorts of things that that school saw as part of their, um, if you like, their not just their philosophy, but why they were there. Why, why are schools here? They're not just there to do, of course, the curriculum is incredibly important if kids aren't literate, if they aren't numerate, all of those things, but that there's another role for schools which needs to be supported and, um, and really kind of engaged with. And they saw that. Very strongly. I, I, I mean, I think um, thinking Absolutely. as well, no, and to see themselves as as yes. members of the community. Yes. Which um, for some schools, I think obviously they have so many competing priorities that yes. quite often they can just very much look inwards. Yes, that's yeah? right. And it look it's tough for schools. I have to say, I was I was a teacher. I was mm. a deputy principal. I worked in the education department for over twelve years. So, and I now work very closely with schools across Victoria. So mm. I am very conscious of the demands, the accountabilities, the competing interests. Um, Absolutely. And it's and it's it's tough. So you know, one of the things we've produced a report, but one of the things is around how do you do this as part of your overall program rather than as something you just add on because you think it's you know just another thing I have to do. Well, that, that's so important, isn't it? To to also run programs with, um, you know, that are sustained in time mm -hmm. and where teachers also, mm -hmm. you know, they get to practice this yes not just someone coming in yes yeah so exactly i think the grattan report mm -hmm. um there was a uh, grattan report on school disengagement and mm -hmm. very very um talking about the importance of that of, mm -hmm. of um you know organizing activities and programs where teachers um were involved with these things on an ongoing basis mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. it wasn't just like a one-off oh today yes. someone is going to come to talk about this and that's it that's exactly right yeah. and and to to see that you know the community can be a great resource mm -hmm. and that they can you know they can be really in a way your be best friends and your your biggest supporters and they you know you know and and how you how you kind of build that that relationship you know that's that's a huge amount of investment and energy and time and Jane I was going to ask you um are you involved in um teacher training as well? 
Um, not in my cu- not in my current role. I certainly have been, and I did do it for a long time. Um, but certainly, of course, there are people within my faculty who who do a lot of work in that area. Yeah, yeah. Because I I was just really interested in in hearing from you mm-hmm. what how you thought teacher training has evolved over time and mm-hmm. how because you said before that you mm-hmm. think it's much better now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which are some ways in which you think it's better? Look, I think in terms of. Um, You know, under, look, some really practical stuff, basic stuff, kind of, you know, 12 months of a DIP-Ed Diploma of Education, I don't think gave me a sufficient grounding in actually how to go in and teach. It's shocking, but it's true. So that's what I mean about I learnt on the, on the ground, working with other teachers who were, who were great role models for me. I was fortunate in that sense. Um, but I think, look, teacher training, I think, has really kind of um, – And not all teacher training was was like that. I'm just saying mm, that was my yeah. particular qualification. That's right. So I think there's been a huge improvement in, overall in that there it's a longer duration, so it takes longer. There's there's um, an understanding that it's developmental. So you know how you learn and the kinds of skills you build t- they take time. That can't just happen in you know a very short period of time. So I think in terms of Understanding the curriculum, understanding practices of teaching. I think that that's been, you know, and concrete practices, that's been really um, a huge improvement. I think the area, you know, there's a number of areas, but one of the main areas I would say where there still needs to be more work done is around how do you engage with socially diverse um, communities of children and so you know schools are socially diverse they reflect the communities in which they um they are based and when you are you know a young person or you might be a mature age student and you go out into schools which um they may be culturally very different from the schools that you've been used to working and teaching in or or just training in or growing up in um how do you deal with that level of diversity and the diversity might be around poverty it might be around ethnicity it might be around religion For me, I you know, I mentioned my cultural shock of going from a very multicultural, diverse environment to a monocultural environment. Well, that was a cultural shock for me. Mm. I hadn't ever worked, taught or been part of a, a culture like that. And so I had to learn about a rural environment. I had to learn about farming. I had to understand that when kids told me about going out and going spotlighting, To actually understand what that meant, I was horrified. But I had to understand it, you know. Yeah. And it, it makes me think of uh, Paulo Freire, um, mm-hmm. who uh, developed a whole bunch of resources uh, specifically about far- farming. Exactly. And how important that was. Yes, yes. And I've got to say, I think I was a much better teacher by the end of two years <laughs> because the kids taught me sometimes brutally, as children do, but they taught me to be much more open-minded. And not to dismiss, to understand a, a different culture, one that I hadn't encountered before. I, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Uh, I, uh, you know, sorry, perhaps we're moving mm-hmm. a, a little bit away from your field of expertise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, of course, you know mm-hmm. a, a, lot, a lot about this, but I was thinking mm-hmm. of programs like Teach for Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I know at, at the moment they have a program called the Nexus Program. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's uh, La Trobe University. They are no. trying to implement that. No. Um, And I guess what I was thinking is, you know, there's this very specific focus on getting, I don't know, the the best people to, and I think, you know, you, to go into teaching, one of the most important things is that you, you go in with the right values as mm. well, isn't it? I Absolutely. Mean. And I think, <clears throat> I, I mean, I, I you know, there, there are both pros and cons to teach for Australia. Um, look, I, I think understandably uh, politicians um, and and the community deserve, we want, to, you know, the the... the 
intellectually the most capable people going into teaching. Um, we also need people with a passion and an understanding. Um, one of the issues I think around Teach for Australia is that there's a kind of assumption that if people are intellectually able, that that necessarily may make them better <laughs> teachers. Now, I'm sorry, but um, I know a lot of very intellectually able people and they're not necessarily going to be fantastic yeah. teachers. So you have to have a passion, you have to have a commitment. One of the other issues I think that has been shown around Teach for Australia is that they are being sent into some of the most disadvantaged and um, challenging uh, school circumstances. Now, those schools require teachers who are not only intellectually able, but teachers who have a passion, who have an understanding of those cultures and who know how to work in a really sophisticated way. I frankly think that that's not, they're not necessarily the best equipped or best prepared teachers in that sense. What? And I've realized that we have literally run out of time. I think for you, we needed at least three hours. Um, we're going to have to have you back at some point. Yeah, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to come back. We're doing some really interesting research um, around uh, refugee background children and play. So I'd love to come back and talk about that sometime. Well, let's, let's do it. So um, we're going to leave our listeners with your last selection. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so, that's so uh, this is the uh, Pasha Bell Canon. Again, this is a piece which is a classical piece, um, but I think when people hear it, they'll probably recognise it. Uh, it's one of the most moving pieces I've ever heard in my life, and every time I listen to it, I can feel it actually now. The, hair, <laughs> the hairs go up, um, up on the back of my arm, so I hope you'll, you'll enjoy it as well. Beautiful, and don't forget, uh, you can be spending some time with Alec this morning, uh, Morning Magazine. Um, and we'll see you next week thank you very much Jane it's been a pleasure to talk to you today thank you Harmi it's been wonderful see you all next week